When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello, controller. Are you ready to begin? All engines are started. That looks really good. So we'd like it to uh, stir up your cryo tank. Oh, wow, it's going up so slowly. The state of the space flyer during the flight is being observed with the help of radio, telemetric, and television devices. Station, this is Houston. Are you ready for the event? Yes, I'm all set, yeah. Welcome to Space Boffins in partnership with The Naked Scientists with Richard Hollingham and Sue Nelson. And today we're in a post-production suite in central London for a new film out this month called Mission Control. It's about the unsung heroes of the Apollo program, inspired by the book Go Flight by Rick Houston. Without somebody there in Mission Control to monitor all the data coming back, all the telemetry coming back from the spacecraft... The astronauts could not have done it by themselves. More from Rick later, plus NASA flight controller Cy Liebergott as he recalls what happened on the ground in mission control during the Apollo 13 crisis. And if that's not cool enough for you, I'll be talking to the voice of space shuttle mission launches, Hugh Harris at Cape Canaveral. We're joined first, though, by the director of the documentary film Mission Control, David Fairhead, and... uh, we're in an edit suite, but it, it has finished, hasn't it? Because it's coming out fairly soon. The film is completed, yes. Don't worry, everyone. You can go and see it at the cinema or uh, on demand. It's available on iTunes and Vimeo. A post-production suite for anybody who's not been in one. It's a sort of um, man cave with lots of TV screens, basically. Yes, it's hog heaven. <laughs> uh, but as an old film uh, editor rather than uh, video editor, of course, I still hark back to those days of, of humming machinery and all the rest of it. These days, it's just computers and digitised images and sound, I'm afraid. Yeah, and, and the odd, I noticed that as we were walking to this one, past quite a few with different numbers on, they all had um, sofas in the background. So I assume that's where the director, which in this case is, is you, not just an editor, but director, that's where you sit and give the overview, which must be difficult when you're an editor as well to actually separate your roles. Well, I was one in the same on, on this film, so I couldn't separate myself to sit on a sofa and <laughs> and be at the, uh, at the at the desk as well. So I had to have two hats, one with D and one with E on it. Well, uh, let's um, have a, a taster of, of the movie now with this clip. No single space project in this period will be more impressive to mankind or more important for the long-range exploration of space. We didn't make smarts about going to the moon. These things are pretty complicated. You could have heard a pin drop in that control center. I mean, it's the first time we go behind the moon. Okay, all flight controllers, going to go for landing. Retro. Go. I know. Go. I know. Capcom, we're go for landing. We needed to pull this team together doing something that had never been done before.
Then it finally dawned on us, we just landed on the moon. And it's like the team delivered this. You know, I'm not ashamed to admit, I was crying. I had the feeling of what it meant. You know, we're making history. I think all of us did. Somehow or other, when we came together, we were greater than the sum of our parts. We became capable of doing what would be considered impossible. I can't wait to see it. Richard has already had a sneak I've seen though. an early version of it, so I'll be interested to see the, the final version. So I went to one of these previews where you fill in a form and say what you like and what you don't like. I'm not going to tell you what I said at the time. I'll, I'll, I'll quiz you later. Yeah. Uh, now, one of the people featured in the film is Cy Liebergott. He's retired now, but back in the 60s, he was a flight controller of the Apollo missions, including Apollo 13. And his job was to look after ECOM, which is Electrical, Environmental and Consumables Manager. We'll be asking questions later. Uh, which basically means the life support for the command module. I met up with him and asked him about that fateful flight. My uh, responsibility was to monitor the operation of roughly half of the spacecraft systems, which is the critical life support systems, and report on the system's health to the flight director. And if there was any malfunctions, to report that and report corrective action and the impact upon the mission. And uh, we could call a halt to the mission if, if need be, because our job was to ensure the um, success of the mission and the safety of the crew and that's what we did it was pretty dull if there was nothing else going on just looking at data screens and uh, making sure that we didn't see any malfunctions april 13 1970 the mood could only be described as relaxed apollo 13 man's fifth lunar mission the third scheduled to land on the moon there wasn't much going on. Uh, it was the third time we were going to land on the moon. <clears throat> the news media didn't care. They figured we'd landed twice, and the, and they decided on their own that the, the general public was not interested anymore in us going and landing on the moon, so they didn't have anybody at the control center uh, monitoring it. Uh, there was nothing ordinary about going to the moon and landing on it and taking off and coming home, <laughs> but they didn't care. So uh, when the emergency occurred... Of course, everybody wanted to know everything. There was a lot of commotion. Okay, yes, sir, we've had a problem here. We had a pretty large bang associated with the um, caution and warning there. Stand by, 13. We're looking at it. We are, uh, we are venting something out uh, into the uh, into space. Roger, we copy your venting. Nobody knew what happened. <laughs> and the data went crazy because a lot of the data didn't exist anymore. And we didn't know what we were saying. So if you don't know what you're saying and can't understand it, you have to just wait until you can sort it out. And uh, it took a while to sort it out, probably up to 20 minutes. You know, I was in my last hour of my eight-hour work shift. And that's why I call this talk that I give the longest hour. <laughs> it was long. Uh, it was my systems that had the malfunction. The oxygen tank essentially blew up and blew off side of the, the side of the spacecraft. Uh, the shock of that uh, on the upper shelf in that segment of the service module that was affected uh, killed off two of the three electrical power plants 
And uh, we lost roughly half the spacecraft systems, and we were in very critical condition. And, and also the remaining oxygen tank number one was leaking rapidly. So there's a lot of commotion in the control room, and uh, finally uh, the flight director, Gene Kranz, got everybody quieted down, and all of the uh, chatter then became on the intercom loops, so nobody could hear outside that. Okay, Houston, are you still reading 13? That's affirmative. Uh, we're reading you. We're uh, trying to come up with some good ideas here for you. I assume you've called in your backup becomes. Flight, say again. Have you called in your backup becomes now? See if we can get some more brain power in this We thing. got one here. Roger. At the moment, the astronauts are continuing to try to isolate their trouble. A late report says the spacecraft now is operating on battery power alone. All unnecessary equipment is being turned off. Shut down. Roger, shut down. Roger, now we want to power down as soon as possible. Okay, now let's everybody keep cool. We got the limb still attached. The limb spacecraft's good, so if we need uh, to get back home, we got a limb to do a good portion of it with. Okay, let's make sure that we don't do anything that's going to blow our CSM electrical power with the batteries or that will cause us to lose the main or the uh, fuel cell number two. Okay, we want to keep the O2 and that kind of stuff working. We'd like to have RCS, but we got the command module system, so we're in good shape if we need to get home. Let's solve the problem, but let's not make it any worse by guessing. And uh, we got into an orderly fashion and... Uh, Finally got to the point where we we were not going to be able to land on the moon. The mission was gone, and uh, the decision was made to loop around the moon, make a corrective burn to intersect the Earth, and we brought them home alive. We never never occurred to us that we wouldn't bring them back alive. That was, such was not the attitude of flight controllers. And, and the the heroes of that kind of thing is the flight director because he he's like an orchestra leader, and he he got everybody working their problems and then established uh, what we had left and then assigned teams to work on the return requirements. Pretty good stuff. We were, we were good. <laughs> Cy Liebergott, one of the uh, flight controllers for the Apollo missions. And that was an interview I did. And um, some of the things he says, David, in my interview but also in, in the film, you just, um, these are remarkable people, and yet... No one knows, unless you're a real anorak about this stuff. You know, Cy Liebergott is reasonably well-known among the Apollo aficionados, but otherwise no one knows who these people are. No, the, the first clue, really, to their existence, if you like, was the movie Apollo 13, which put them centre stage. And uh, Cy Liebergott is played in that film by Ron Howard's brother, actually. And so they, they became minor celebrities, if you like, exactly as you say, am- amongst the cognoscenti. But to the great, you know, the public out there, they're completely unknown. And that's why they really are the unsung heroes, because without them, the astronauts could not have got there and back. So, no, they're extraordinary people. And, and one of the things that we try and draw out in the film is this very ordinariness in quotes if you like they are just people like you and I that may be slightly better at maths and physics but they were people like you and I and they went to very ordinary you know schools and universities in in unfashionable states in the United States and um, uh, none of them none were Harvard educated or Yale or MIT like a lot of the astronauts were or became they just went to these ordinary schools and applied for a job at NASA when NASA was crewing up and that's how they ended up where they were also young 
young as well. You see the pictures back then. I mean, you know, even now, when I met up with a few of them, they don't look that old. They're not certainly not as old as the astronauts. No, they're not. They're, they're kind of almost like a generation after. But then you have to remember, most of they started crewing up for the most part in in the mid sixties, round about Gemini, just as they were coming on to Apollo. They're, they're sort of relatively youthful. I mean, Glyn Lunny, one of the controllers, says in the film that the average age of his team was twenty seven. And wow. the responsibility that they had on their shoulders was something else. Mind you, it does mean when you do have to pull all non-stop all-nighters in a crisis, their youth will be extra incredibly welcome. Then. Yes, it's a bit like working in the film industry. I try to avoid those all-nighters now. <laughs> Is that what drew you to them as a subject, the fact that they are the lesser-known sort of part of the, the space industry and uh, perhaps people should be take some of the focus away from the glory of being an astronaut and think about the people that put them there? Well, the idea for the film came from the producers, Keith Haviland and Gareth Dodds, in conversation with Rick Houston. And um, so I, I've, I've been in the fortunate position of being a film editor. I've worked on uh, quite a few uh, space-themed uh, productions over the years. So I, and I just worked on Last Man on the Moon, the film about Gene Cernan. And Gareth suggested me for the job, so I wasn't so much uh, drawn to the to the story as thrown into it. <laughs> but um, but I assume you <laughs> you got to love it. <laughs> absolutely. I mean, I you know the, 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 there are worse places to be working. Believe me. Um, no, there's always something attractive in trying to sell, uh, to tell a well known story in a different way and from a different angle. And the great thing about this particular story is that the, you're dealing with a whole bunch of people who've, who've they have given their story before, but not to not to a large audience. And what we're hoping is now we can change that and, and an awful lot more people can hear what they did and what they achieved because they were the most extraordinary team. How do you break beyond the the space fan audience? I mean, obviously, the, the most recent example of that, but it was a drama, was Hidden Figures, which, which has done very well at yeah. the box office. How do you do it with the documentary? Well... The thing is that you do have to think beyond, you know, look beyond the anorak. Um, it's careful. You've got to. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's by universal themes, isn't it? That that's that's the thing that you need to look for. And you're really in a documentary. You're looking to present. Uh, a story in 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 as, as you know in the best way possible. You want it to be dramatic. You don't want to overblow it, of course, because that's where a lot of films fall down. You've got to remain within. You know there are constraints, but the real secret for me is always emotion, because if you buy into those characters and if you listen to what they're saying, then as an audience, you know, we've got you. Um, and, and, and that's the thing, there is real drama in these stories, you know, from Apollo 1, well, even before that, that there's even drama in the way that Mission Control was set up, because it started back in the days of, you know, X-plane testing out in, out in, out in you know, Edwards Air Force Base. So it was a matter of, of telling those stories in as compelling a way as possible, and that's how you hope to reach out to the larger audience. I was interested, actually, in we just heard from Cy Liebergott talking about it being like an orchestra. And, I mean, you alluded to that, the way it was set up and, and the way it operated. It was very much a, a team. 
the first time been, that sort of thing had been done? It wasn't based on anything beforehand, and the idea really came through Christopher Craft, who is sort of the father of mission control. And we he's were, a very scary man. He's, he's a scary man, but he's a very impressive man as well. And he's also 93, I think, now. Um, and uh, you can see that he was a force. He must have been a force in his youth, because he still is now. Um, uh, but he was the man who g- came up with the kind of concept of mission control, through the X-plane testing and then through into the Mercury program. And he worked for the predecessor of NASA, the NACA. And and through that process, they came to realise all the various things that they needed. And when we interviewed him, I wasn't I wasn't quite sure, you know, what, how he'd be as an interviewee. And we only had a couple of hours and I had a list of questions. So I asked him the, the normal preamble stuff. Tell me your name. Where are you from? And then I said, well, tell me about the foundations of mission control. 26 minutes later, he stopped the answer. It was the most incredible mini-lecture I've ever been on the receiving end of. Um, and it was all about how they took it from its very beginnings to where they were ready to launch a spacecraft. Absolutely incredible. It's a real vote of confidence that, well, firstly, you got him to talk to you, but that he felt that was the forum to, to talk about this and get, get it across. Well, I mean, he's been interviewed probably thousands of times, but... Yes, he was... Um, kind of... I, I interviewed him in 1997. Did you? Well, yeah. he was probably scary then. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but um, no, he was, to answer your earlier question, actually, he, he was likened by Time magazine back in the 60s to the conductor of the orchestra. And, of course, it wasn't just him, and he would never claim it was just him. It was the people they put in place around them. Um, and uh, and, and this, is, this is all part of this extraordinary team that... Um, it was all about trust and uh, you know modern management would have nightmares with it because you know modern management is all about micromanagement whereas this was about you're hired we expect you to do your job get on with it and that that freed up the senior people like Kraft to get on with doing everything else that needed to be done and so it was this extraordinary framework and teamwork of trust and ability was it not a little bit um, daunting because Chris Craft's book, Flight, is just superb, that you're actually trying to do something similar? For the research, for all the uh, uh, characters, you know, our, our contributors, um, I had to read as many books as I could in quite a short period of time, actually. So I, I, you know, there were overlaps in, in all the books. No, his book is extraordinary. And he's an extraordinary man. But then, you know, Krantz, Gene Krantz, uh, who's the lead flight director, one of the lead flight directors, I should say. Famous with the waistcoat in Apollo 13. That's right. And it was the Apollo 13 film that brought him to prominence. But of course, he's just one of the flight directors, best known, but just one of them. And so what was fantastic as an opportunity was to tell everyone's stories so it wasn't just uh, Gene Kranz but it was also Glyn Lunny as well uh, and and Jerry Griffin the, the, these unknown characters almost to the world out there whose stories are every bit as valid and every bit as exciting. Now I've seen the film but I've only seen an early cut so you've probably changed it since then it was excellent it Thank was you. superb <laughs> what I particularly liked I mean the stories are great and the personal stories are great and it does definitely reach beyond beyond the anorak, as you say. I liked the way, and I hope this is in the final cut, <laughs> um, that you, you bookended it with women. Uh, you had flight controllers today, and actually it's a pretty good mix. And actually you heard from the female flight controllers, because at the time, in the 60s, there were just 
no women to be seen other than the secretaries. Well, that's absolutely right. And that was a very deliberate thing because we became aware whilst we were doing the interviews that, that you know, women were absent from this story. And um, I, I felt that it was important that we get a female feminine voice. It was, it was very important to tell the, the, how NASA has moved on as well because you know it's a, it's a generational thing back in the day perhaps they didn't think about employing women it was just men it was a natural thing that you did now of course it's opened up and 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 so yes we were able to speak to two female flight controllers which ones uh, courtney mcmillan and ginger kerrick all right okay but you go in mission control now and i mean firstly it looks different it's all flat rather than this sort of tiered theater arrangement but it is at least 50 percent Women, yeah, no, it's a real mix, it, as is NASA and as is the, well, the latest well, astronaut intake. It is, and there are people of colour. You know, it's a completely different environment. Um, also, I think what I loved about the those old mission pictures is that they're all wearing um, usually male white white shirts. And those really cool geek black glasses that that also seem to be part of the uniform as well. Absolutely. Well, that that you've just described, Cy Liebergott back in the day, <laughs> he looked just like that. And they, and they yes, these these short sleeve shirts. <laughs> the other thing they also always had were things called pocket protectors, which is what their pens went into so they wouldn't leak. Great, love it. A pocket protector. Yeah. Oh, that's fantastic. Like, funnily enough, I saw an episode yeah. of The Big Bang Theory where yeah. that was mentioned, and that was really? the first time I'd ever heard of it. Because needless to say, Sheldon a had one. Yeah. That sounds <laughs> yeah. fantastic. That's right. There's a Christmas Christmas gift idea <laughs> right there. Yeah. You had it here first. Yeah. Well, let's hear a little bit more from uh, one of the people who started this project with his book. I spoke to Rick Houston to uncover just how important mission control was. Without somebody there in mission control to monitor all the data coming back, all the telemetry coming back from the spacecraft, the astronauts could not have done it by themselves when problems arose, and they arose on virtually every flight. And the way that the guys in the mission control room in general, and specifically the guys in the trench, the trajectory guys, they said that they were the first line of defense in human spaceflight, and that's what they were. The extraordinary thing to me is that these weren't guys who went to the Oxfords of the world and the Yales of the world and the Harvards of the world. And even taking that a step further, by and large, they came from very humble circumstances. These were not people who, uh, if you'd known them early in their lives, you would have ever expected them to accomplish what they accomplished. You know, we sort of take for granted that there's, there's mission control. There's the mission, there's mission. I mean, that can't have been a necessarily an obvious decision to do that. Well, I think it all started with Chris Kraft. Uh, I, I call him the godfather of mission control. Uh, everything kind of flowed from him. Because when President Kennedy stood before Congress in May of 1961, the technology didn't exist to land a man on the moon. The procedures didn't exist. The equipment didn't exist. That probably is one of the most extraordinary things about this entire story is the fact that when President Kennedy said that, America had 15 minutes of suborbital spaceflight in its history. And President Kennedy said, hey, we're going to go to the moon in eight years. And so that, that to me, is the, the biggest remarkable aspect about this entire story is the fact of how far we came so quickly. 
Give me a sense, a general sense of how it's set up, because only one person in mission control speaks to the, the spacecraft. It's kind of a pyramid. The flight director is at the top, the flight controllers are next, and then the people in the staff support room are next. It's a vast ocean of knowledge. The way that I've heard it described is in the military, you have many people involved and basically one leader. And that's basically the way it is in mission control. That flight director has the final say. Give me, I guess, an idea of of the technology involved. I mean, particularly with the, the new control center built for Gemini and then into Apollo. There was a giant leap in sophistication of the technology uh, from especially Mercury to Gemini. In the Mercury control room, the world map at the front of the room actually had a small little plastic spacecraft that clicked across the map. Everything was analog. In the mission control room in Houston, the data was all digitized. And obviously, the cell phone that I have in my pocket right now has infinitely more computing power than what they landed on the moon with. Rick Houston, author of Go Flight, the unsung heroes of mission control. Still to come on Space Boffins, a space legend, the voice of the space shuttle. We're in partnership with the Naked Scientists. You can tweet us at Space Boffins or find us on Facebook where you can see pictures of our recording today, the mission control trailer and the fabulous SpaceX Uptown Funk parody. Do you want to do a bit of that now? No. <laughs> you looked so you looked so terrified when I, I said that. Yeah. Launch a land and reload. Yeah, please don't. All right. When it comes to fictional heroes, space has some of the best. Doctor Who, Luke Skywalker, Captain Kirk. But long before any of those, this man, Dan Dare, pilot of the future. Uh, Professor Jocelyn Peabody, Colonel Dan Dare. I believe it's customary to shake hands. Or not. Everything has to pay its way. But then I wouldn't expect a flyboy like you to understand. Too much time with your head in the clouds. I'd rather have my head in the clouds than stuck down a test tube. As a matter of fact, Peabody isn't just a scientist. She's research director for the Eagle Corporation. They're actually paying for all this. Which technically makes me your boss. You privatize the space program. Peabody's hardly an accountant. Probably knows more about aerodynamics than you do. There's more to flying than aerodynamics. Especially when you're flying to Venus. Venus? Sorry, I forgot to mention. These markings, we found them engraved on some of the hull fragments. Not like any language I've ever seen. They're pictographs. NASA used something similar on the Pioneer probes 70 years ago. So far, we've established they're a message from a creature called Sondar on Venus. Your translation must be wrong. Venus is too hostile for life. On the surface, it's all hot and toxic. Even worse than the Eagle boardroom. You want to try Whitehall? But in the cloud belt that surrounds the planet, there are more possibilities. That's where we're going. That's from a new series of audio adventures with a completely reimagined Dan Dare for the 21st century. Did you remember Dan Dare? You were Dan Dare, I, David. I, I, Dan I, Dare do, I do remember Dan Dare and the Mekon 
Um, if I've, I've still got some 60s comics at home that my grandmother bought me with Dan Dare in. So. Oh, that's fantastic. They're probably worth something. They probably well, they're are. probably really <laughs> damaged, aren't uh, they? No, they're, they're stuffed, shoved in a box and they've probably been munched on by mice. But, uh... <laughs> uh, what's strange about da- uh, Dan Dare? He's a very British hero. I don't think people necessarily in the States will have heard of Dan Dare. No, well, who who knows? I mean, he's got his jutting chin and his his uh, battered hat with his uh, with his headphones over the top, hasn't he? But he was, uh, you know, he was he was taming the universe as only the British know how. <laughs> no, I've got a vested interest in this. Uh, we've made the documentary that accompanies this new series of, of audio adventures produced by uh, B Seven, and what I didn't realise though, like you said, I mean, you're working on space stuff now. Used to read Dan Dare. Alan Bond, who... Skylon. Yeah, yeah. Skylon, Reaction Engines, one of the foremost British rocket engineers, was such a Dan Dare fan, and he's inspired by that. Such a fan of the Eagle, that he, he, as a result, became this engineer working to build one of these amazing sort sort of starships. But I think the other thing that's interesting about Dan Dare that we've talked about as well is the role of women in Dan Dare. So Dan Dare... 1950s had a very strong female character with Jocelyn Peabody, right. the scientist. And, you know, unlike most of the, what we've been talking about with, with Apollo, Star Trek, I mean, yeah, you, but I mean, really, the female characters in Star Trek, they're nurses or glorified telephone operators. No, that's operators. not true. No, that's not what true, because you get her? the... You yeah, get... but she's just a telephone operator. It's like no. a telephone, isn't it? No, yeah. no, 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 because a lot of the scientists were female. So just stop that right now. <laughs> but it is, I mean, it's, it's really good to see that, uh, that, that Dan dares back. I just hope it gets a, a bit of an international audience. Well, it's interesting what you say as well about Alan Bond, because it just goes to show how important a lot of this stuff is, is inspiring young minds, isn't it? And it's amazing what catches people's imagination. And back in the 50s and 60s, space was the future. Um, now it's just kind of with us. Uh, and, and bizarrely, you know, of course, the Americans haven't got any launch capability. Well, I suppose they have now a SpaceX, but they haven't had for some years. Although it's good to hear that they've changed Eagle Comic to Corporation and mm. they were in that clip you heard about them talking about privatising space because actually the future is here because that's effectively what, 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 what we've got now. Exactly, yeah. Well, we'll put a link to the uh, series up on our uh, Facebook page. And um, like uh, your film, David, it's available now. This is Shuttle Launch Control. The launch team is still in the process of recycling. from. The I was in Cape Canaveral recently making a documentary about the moon for BBC World Service Radio. And while there, I met Hugh Harris. He's retired now after working at NASA Public Affairs from the Apollo missions onwards. But he's more widely known as the voice of Shuttle Launch Control after providing launch commentary for the Space Shuttle. This is Hugh before the launch of STS-30. Uh, the mission manager, uh, Bob Crippen, is standing by. As Hugh was in public affairs, I began by asking him if he'd had any broadcasting experience. The first time I was on the radio was when I was nine. And when I was 12, I was a, uh, a staff announcer at an uh, education radio station, which was one of the early FM stations in this country. And uh, then while I was in high school, the, the uh, three of the four years, I was in charge of a program that was on a commercial uh, uh, station, which was all students that were the actors. But uh, 
that's the way I started. And uh, from there, I, d I did go on uh, to uh, uh, working in a uh, radio station in New Jersey and uh, uh, also as a, a, a writer on a newspaper. Now, I've had a limited experience of commentating myself, very, 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 nothing compared to yours, but for the European Space Agency. And even though I'm a, a broadcaster, I found the commentary bit really quite difficult. Uh, it requires a different set of skills. Well, it scares people to death. <laughs> the, I had uh, one very highly placed uh, NASA official come to me about the third launch that I was doing and say, who tells you what to say? And I said, I just report on what's happening as it's happening. And he said, I don't know whether that's a good idea. So it's it's, <laughs> but that we've always in in public affairs in NASA had the policy of telling what's happening uh, and uh, whether the results are good or bad, and because uh, honesty uh, for a government agency uh, or any agency for that matter, I think is absolutely essential. Uh, to being able to continue a program. And trust as well. Trust, absolutely. T minus 10, 9, 8, 7, 6. We have main engine start. 4, 3, 2, 1. And liftoff. Liftoff of the 25th Space Shuttle mission, and it has cleared the tower. Controllers here looking very carefully at the situation. Obviously a major malfunction. We have no downlink. Actually, I was not the commentator at the time uh, that it, we had the accident. I, I got uh, here at the Kennedy Space Center uh, we do the commentary up to the time it clears the tower. So you did the and beginning bit th so and I, then someone yeah, took over. For about three hours okay. uh, before it, it was launched. Yeah. And once it was launched, then the Johnson Space Center and Steve Nesbitt there took over the commentary. And he's the person that said, obviously, a major, a major malfunction. Do you, do you feel for him, though? Because he got quite a little bit of uh, stick for it, effectively. And it does, when you listen back, it sounds so clinical to something that's so personal as, as well and, and live. But, it, I mean, what would you have said? That's so difficult. I know you said you have to report on what's happening. Is that basically all you can do? Well, uh, yeah, I, I think he did a, you know, a fine job uh, under difficult circumstances because nobody knew at that moment what had caused the accident, and it would be, uh, you know, not good to speculate on what possibly uh, the causes of the accident were uh, until after a thorough investigation uh, had been done. So it's, uh, it's difficult, but I think you're on safe ground when you say, here's what's happening at the time it was happening. Now, a number of things went wrong uh, 
during that in public affairs too. We, we had um, several challenges. One was that the a person at NASA headquarters who was the head of public affairs had only joined the organization uh, about a month before this happened. And we had scheduled a what we called a contingency exercise where we would have run through having an accident and what each person did. Well, unfortunately, she didn't have the opportunity to go through that. We also had a brand-new administrator who was an acting administrator, and he wasn't even here, uh, so he couldn't uh, uh, be out there in front and go talk to the press. That's just unfortunate, isn't it? Oh, yes. Which, which for you was the your favorite mission to commentate on and your worst? Or, or are they all equally memorable? They're, I guess they're, you know, equally important. The first one, of course, is always the biggest challenge. And I, I guess that would be my favorite one, partly because uh, nobody had done it before. And the launch director, George Page, uh, really didn't want me in the control room talking. <laughs> and he said, I don't want you talking to anybody who's in here. <laughs> and so if anything had gone wrong, there wasn't, I couldn't turn to somebody and say, do you know what just happened? <laughs> Five, four, we've gone for main engine start. We have main engine start. Who wrote those amazing opening spiels? Like, um, and now we have, you know, a journey to the stars and beyond. You know, they always sound like wonderful ads. Yeah. Or who, who wrote those? Well, the, whoever the commentator was. So did you uh, write a lot of those phrases? Well, except that I was not that dramatic, usually. <laughs> I, I felt our job was to, you know, just... You know, be very factual. And, I like and, them. I always and, like them, to be honest, because they um, they set the tone that mm-hmm. this wasn't something ordinary, <clears throat> even though you sort of took them right. for granted because they happen so often, that it was still something difficult and special. Well, and, and that's true. And, of course, on the first one, I mean, that the fact that it was launching <laughs> was very special. So I think in some cases, less is more. <laughs> The voice of Shuttle Launch Control, the lovely Hugh Harris. Uh, I think I'd call commentators unsung heroes uh, as well. Do you think maybe that could be your next film, David? <laughs> well, we'll see what we can do. Depends in which field you mean. Okay. Uh, I mean, I'm not in the league of, of Hugh Harris, but I do the commentaries, uh, as I've probably mentioned before, uh, for European Space Agency, for human spaceflight. And I think Challenger is really interesting for anyone who does these these commentaries. So I commentate on Tim Peake's launch. When you are commentating live to the world on a spacecraft that's just got a satellite at the top, you've kind of at the back of your mind, well, worst case scenario, no one is going to die. The worst case scenario, when you've got people at the top, it's genuinely scary watching from Mission Control and, and thinking about that there are there are people there. And at the same time, professionally, you don't want to be the guy who says, obviously, a major malfunction 
when people have, have lost their lives. I remember at the time, I think it was the Bradford fire back in the 80s, the fire at the football ground, and, and I read a piece in the paper not long after that talking about the commentator. And he was an ordinary football commentator having to deliver information about this terrible event that was unfolding in front of him. And all he could say was the poor people. And this, this newspaper article made the, made the link to... The, the, the commentator who watched the Hindenburg crash, and all he could say was the poor people. It's uh, We're unprepared for this kind of stuff. But to go pick up on your comment there about, about mission control again, the thing about these the people who were in mission control, and back in the day in the 60s it was, it was men, um, uh, is, is the extraordinary weight of responsibility that they bore on their shoulders because every one of them had to get their job right in order to make the thing happen. And yet, at the back of their mind, maybe was this thought that, what if it goes wrong today? Whose fault will it be? And that goes back to your your interview with Cy there, and also he talks in the film about it, about how they dealt with this stuff. And... Um, you know, it was they had deep reserves of of, of 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 gumption, if you like. They really had to just get on with the job and do it to the best of their ability and hope that everyone else was able to do it and that something didn't malfunction. And I think the thing is, because we expect it to always work, there is an assumption there that it will be successful, it will all be fine. But you've got to be prepared. You've got to have that, well, what if it doesn't? And that's why they're there. That, that's true. I mean, one of the reasons, um, you know, when we were structuring the film and looking at which stories to tell, because, of course, there are thousands of stories. Which ones do you tell? Which ones do you not? And, and, and a, the initial brief would, had been to, well, let's try and tell those stories that haven't been told before. But you naturally gravitate towards these key stories. And, and for Mission Control, for me, it wasn't Apollo 11, the actual moon landing, that was the key moment. It was Apollo 13, because that's when everything came together. And every person we interviewed played a, a part in Apollo 13. They all came rushing in when they heard what had happened. They slept underneath desks. They didn't change their clothes for five days. As one of our, uh, 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 Ed Fendel, one of our contributors says, it was pretty ripe. Um, but they did what was needed to be done, and they got it done, and they got those guys home. David Fairhead, director of the upcoming Mission Control, thank you very much for joining us and uh, allowing us into the edit suite. No problem. Because uh, you're making a, you're actually in the middle of your next project now. That, well, aren't next you? project, but one even. That's, uh, <laughs> yeah, so now making a film uh, called Mercury 13 about the uh, women who approached who were approached to be part of the space programme back in the 1960s. Oh, we know all about it on this podcast. And uh, your Mission Control film out from mid-April, April 15th. 14th of April, that, that's right. It's a, that's a general release in the US, but it's also available on iTunes and Vimeo. Thank you. Now, if you enjoy Space Boffins, uh, we'd love it if you could spread the word by writing us a review or rating us on iTunes, uh, but only rate us, obviously, if you're going to give us five stars. Or you could send us a tweet at Space Boffins. We would love to hear from you. Uh, you can vote for us, too, in the Listener's Choice category of the British Podcast Awards. Uh, there's a form. You type in Space Boffins, and uh, rather confusingly, two come up. They're both us, uh, but vote for the one that says From the Naked Scientists. It really will only take a minute. Uh, just saying you don't have to you know but you know if you feel so inclined if you have a minute spare it wouldn't hurt space boffins is a boffin media production supported by the atrium space insurance consortium we're in partnership with the naked scientists and we've been sue nelson and richard hollingham thanks for listening